Marvelous Disney, the podcast that discusses the most recent doings at one of the more dynamic divisions of the Walt Disney Company, which is, of course, Marvel Entertainment. This is entertainment writer Jim Hill, and my co-host, the amazing Aaron Adams, and I are recording this week's episode on Wednesday, September 29th, 2021. Uh, And look, folks, I know this is a Marvel show, but it's become something of a tradition here at MUD that whenever there's news about a Sandman-related project... Aaron gets to talk about it at the top of the show. Didn't we just this past Saturday get our first look at the new Netflix version of Neil Gaiman's beloved comic? We did, and it's weird that you phrase it like that, that we get a look at Neil Gaiman's beloved comic, because truly, Jim, truly, if you were to have Sandman issue one, volume one, page one open in front of you right now, you'd be looking at the storyboards of what was published in video form very recently, the words match, the shots match, the image of Sandman laying down, curled up with his robes and his mask is directly from the printed page. It's so, so faithful. I could not be more excited. Well, it's interesting you say that because Neil Gaiman himself, I guess, is part of Tudum. Is that what the the Netflix global promotional event this past year was called. The, I, I think know. I think you got to give it the of, okay. of the Netflix when you click on it, right? There we or, go. Actually, okay. you know what? No, hold on. I'm going to back yep. you up there. I'm going to go Joel McHale probably about five years ago when he had a, a Netflix uh, internet show for like a season or two, and he called it Babong. Every time he said Netflix, he'd follow it up with, uh, today in Netflix, Babong. So... <laughs> Note to dumb. I know it's I know it's pronounced wrong, but every time we refer to this, I'm just gonna call it babong in that exact tone. So go ahead, Jim, and I'll every time no, you do it, I'm gonna throw a babong in there. If you made the noise, what we were talking about, but okay. But Gaiman, I, I guess, is leading up to the clip that was shared at, at babong. Babong. Uh, heard, heard to say that. <laughs> This project has been in the works. It, it, he described it as a decades-long gestation, and but he said, in a weird sort of way, it turned out to be a bit of a blessing because it allowed Neil to force the production team to stay as true to the comics as possible. I got to tell you, just the, the, the quick version of the history of this, because we love a, a good history lesson about a property, Jim. Um, yeah, we do. This was going to be, once upon a time, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, as yes. the Sandman, also in talks to direct it, but as a film, right? The you know we try and get all of the entirety of Sandman into a film, and nobody could crack that nut. That was a thing that went around Hollywood dozens and dozens of times. How do we turn this into a movie? How do we turn this into a movie? And you can't. And just like we were talking about with the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings, it's the right person across the table from you that you're making the deal with that has to be present in that equation. And finally, after years. Netflix goes, well, what if we made a series? It's like, hey, nut has been cracked. Let's move forward with this uh, with this negotiation. And now you've got something that is much more possible to do, right? Now it's just a matter of casting, and are you going to give us a budget to pull it off, and are you going to make... And the other thing was, Neil Gaiman's other properties, like American Gods, he didn't have a heavy hand in the say of what happened there, and so the showrunners of that no we got to go you know four or five seasons and it went like three seasons too long they dragged it out they wanted to milk that cow until it was bone dry and dead and that was the failure of american gods so when they ended up doing on amazon good omens neil gaiman was much more involved with it he had much heavier say and he went no we can't actually do it the right way and just stick to the story that i had originally written so when sandman came around and you know uh, had that success with good omens he was like hey you want to do sandman I'm the author. I'm the voice. And they said, absolutely, sir. Seasons away, however many you need. They shook hands, and now we're going to find out what happens with season one. And will it get a season two and three and four and five? But right now we're off to a phenomenal start. I have to ask, because you obviously love, love, love this property, but how did you feel about the moving the time of it from... Well, it was set originally in the late 1980s, right, to now present day. Not, well, I mean, portions of it, sure. And really the only difference that happens there is you have cell phones. And I think there was one deal a while ago when we were talking about a uh, a Robert Langdon adventure, Dan Brown and... and uh, 
uh, Ron Howard were discussing, uh, you don't have to go to a library now. It's a boring scene. Just look it up on Google. You got a cell phone. Let's just get the information and move forward, right? We don't have to shoot uh, the travel to the library, the grabbing of the book, the reading of the passage. Just Google it and move on. So moving the timeline can actually be beneficial of we don't have to do the investigation, the long investigation. We can just go to our smartphone get some info and move on. But really, it doesn't change because in the lore of the Sandman, we go back to the Arabian Nights. We go back to the, we talk to Shakespeare while he's still alive. We go through all the periods of time because death is eternal and, and so is dream and desire. So it starts in the now, but after, after the things in the now happen, time doesn't matter anymore because we go to all of them. So Interesting. Okay. Yeah, not not that big of a deal. You know, out of all the things you can change, I think that just makes it so the viewers today can feel connected to the now. It doesn't have to be a, there's no reason for it to be a period piece. It just happened that's when it was created was back then and it was it was uh current in in that era when it was written. So, uh it's yeah, it's fine to be current now as well. Okay. Okay. So, just to wrap things up here, we know we've got 11 episodes coming. Netflix and production wrapped just in August of this year. However, the one thing we don't know right now is when Neil Gaiman's Sandman is going to actually show up on the subscription streaming service. There there are rumors to the effect of early 2022. Have you heard anything? Yeah, Neil is already already confirmed that simply because of the timeline that they took in the creation of Good Omens and to add the special effects, and that he knew that Sandman was going to be very much more effects heavy than what Good Omens was, so it would require more time and attention, and there were delays due to COVID, obviously, that slowed things down. So he said that there he couldn't fathom any way of them getting it out before the end of 2021 and doing it justice it had to come out after 2022 to finish it otherwise you're looking at uh scene 32 missing (laughs) right so now before we move on i'm gonna i'm gonna just get a little bit more nerd juice on the buffet here Uh, another thing that i love dearly and i'll just keep this brief is that the uh, cowboy bebop released their live action opening sequence uh, with John Cho and the rest of the cast. And the music is still the same. Okay, three, two, one, let's jam. And off it kicks. And it looks so, so, so much like the opening of the original anime version, just with some live action elements put in. And again, tickles me in a way that I cannot describe. I'm so eager for this as well. And that is coming uh, the end of November of this year. So we do have something to kind of hold us over until the Sandman arrives to take us off to dreamland. Cool, cool, cool. I'm again, big fan of John Shaw. I mean, he did wonderful work earlier this year for Netflix with uh, Wish Dragon. He voiced the title character. And before we close out here, I, I think also you've done enough plugs for how well Good Omens turned out that it's worth noting. You did see that they announced they're doing a second season of that, right? Yes, and the to put anyone's mind at ease, a long, long time ago in a hotel room far, far away when Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett were sitting down at typewriters across the desk from one another actually writing the original Good Omens, when they finished that original draft, they did hash out ideas and plots and stories for an eventual sequel. And obviously, uh, Terry Pratchett had passed away shortly after the writing of those novels. And Neil, he still has those nuggets, those ideas that were uh, kind of planted by Terry so long ago. And and now we're going to, he's going to use that. That's the the fruit. The tree is going to bear fruit from those seeds that were planted in a hotel room decades ago. It's not just a, hey, we need a sequel and someone, some anonymous writer in some far off land just hammers something out. This is coming straight from the source that uh, the original came from. And uh, we believe with the heavenly blessing of Terry Pratchett. Very cool. Well, when we have more definitive news on when Sandman will in fact get underway at Netflix. Uh, you can bet Aaron will share it here. And Speaking of news, uh, the news portion of today's show is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Jim Hill Media Podcast Network. For a worry-free travel experience, please book online at storybookdestinations.com. 
I know this show is going to be posted online on Friday, October 1st, which is the day that Venom Let There Be Carnage will be released to theaters. I promise that Aaron and I will talk about this Andy Serkis film on next week's show. Uh, neither of us uh, have seen the Venom sequel at this point, so we don't yet know what this don't miss that final scene in the credits thing is all about. So please hang in there. We are less than 24 hours out from the actual release of Venom Let There Be Carnage, and to help boost the overall opening weekend box office for this spunk. <laughs> is that how we're pronouncing it? It is the most humiliating way to say it, so absolutely spunk it is. Okay. And of course, that stands for the Sony Pictures Universe of Marvel Characters, Amy Pascal. She was the chairman of the motion picture group at Sony Pictures Entertainment from 2006 to 2015. These days, uh, she was the producer of the original Venom in 2018 and is also the producer of the sequel, Let There Be Carnage. Pascal really wants Punk to become a thing like MCU, and I, I just don't see it happen. You need a better anagram first. That's <laughs> the good starting point. Usually, like in NASA, they try and spell something out that's kind of cool, like a rover, and it ends up being robotic, orbital vehicle, Earth-leaving robot. Again, because I ran out of R's. You know, but something. But Spunk, it sounds like you stepped in something kind of sticky and you need to get a, a scraper to scrape off the bottom of your shoes some Spunk. Right? <laughs> yes, yes. I concur. Anyway, uh, to help boost the opening weekend box of the Venom sequel, Columbia Pictures is actually releasing Let There Be Carnage to theaters on Thursday night, September 30th. For example, the Regal Hooks It, that's a movie theater up here in New Hampshire, begins screening this Andy Serkis movie in the late afternoon tomorrow. I just checked, and there are still seats available for a 3D screening of Venom, the Venom sequel that begins at 4 o'clock in the afternoon on Thursday. And then the standard screening, so they start at 4.30, and then there's a, a 6.45, a 7.15, a 9.15, there's a reason they do these Thursday night preview screenings. That's what that's what they call them in the uh, the industry. The preview screenings they really do help with the box office. I mean, for example, Shang Chi ticket sales for the Thursday night preview screenings for the Destin Daniel Creighton film they pulled in eight point eight million, which that was nearly ten percent of all the tickets sold for Shang Chi over its first weekend of domestic release. I mean that that movie wound up making. 90 million in North America, its first three and a half days, if you count those 30 night preview screenings, just over those three and a half days. And did you see that Shang-Chi was number one at the box office again this past weekend? That was the fourth weekend in a row? Uh, no, but congratulations. I would uh, go into a closet, open up a box, grab a hat so I could put it on, then take it off and <laughs> doff my cap to you. I do want to say, Jim, to, to kind of back you up. In the advertising industry, one thing that we are aware of is that one of the most positive motivators is word of mouth. Uh, I can write an ad and I can use all of the trickery in the world and maybe I can get you to do what I want you to do, but probably not. But word of mouth from a friend that comes up to you. Oh, did you see that movie? Oh, that's really good. You know, you like this person. You've had a relationship with you. They are looking out for your back. They, you know, let you cry on their shoulder when you broke up with your spouse or whatever it was. You know, they were there for you through thick and thin. They're not going to steer you wrong, obviously. So I'm going to go put my money down on Venom. Let there be carnage. And if they think they've got something worthwhile, they're going to show it off. You know, it's uh, they're going to put a little spotlight on it early generate some buzz from people who are not ad execs from, I mean, we've been trained not to really believe commercials anymore. So a friend, a colleague coming up going, Hey, we went to go see that movie, had a really great time is much more powerful to motivate another person to go into a theater than any advertisement could be. And especially in a time of COVID when some people are still canceling movies and other people are moving dates up, there seems to be a confusion. Is it okay to go to a theater or isn't it? And it seems like it is. And uh, Sony wants to encourage that. And what better way to have your friends say, hey, we went. It was a great time. Go see a movie. Uh, it's interesting you bring up COVID because as of right now, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings is currently the highest grossing film since pre-COVID. Uh, and it's worth noting, uh, if you check out that list, the number two for 2021 
is Marvel's Black Widow. So kind of a one-two punch. But anyway, Shang-Chi's four-week-long run at the top of the box office will end this coming weekend with the release of Venom Let There Be Carnage. But if you go over to Rotten Tomatoes, Let There Be Carnage doesn't have a freshness rating or an audience score yet. That's because this Columbia Figures release has yet to be shown to film critics, which you know, Aaron, typically, you know, when you're like just a, a day and a half out from a film being released, the fact that it hasn't been shown to critics yet, that's typically a warning sign that, you know, there's something wrong with this movie, that, you know, they don't want the reviews out ahead. <laughs> well, it's, honestly, there is the difference between a critic's opinion and a casual observer's opinion. You know, a critic may have gone to a fancy film school and learned everything there is to know about the making of the art known as cinema, and that, sir, is drivel. Whereas someone may have gone into a theater and chewed their popcorn and just smiled ear to ear. That was silly fun, guys. I like it when it went boom. Did you see it go boom, guys? I like the boom. And there's a difference. So, well, you know. no, no, no. Look, you're, you're not wrong. But, but actually what's kind of interesting is if you talk to the folks at Sony Pictures Entertainment, actually it's a different thing going on here. And it, it ties back in with what we talked about at the top of the show that – there's a scene in the credits that they're trying to keep secret. And in fact, comicbook.com actually shared this last week. Tom Hardy himself introduced an early screening of Venom, Let There Be Carnage, in London. And at that time, Hardy turned to the audience and said, there is something possibly at the end of this movie that you might see that has become something of a tradition with these Marvel movies. What you see here, when you leave here, let it stay here. Will you promise me that whatever you see at the end of the movie, during the credits, you will let it stay here and not tweet it? And what's really kind of cool is he did this on the 19th of September. And the audience at this early screening actually honored Tom Hardy's request, which kind of makes me happy, sort of restores my faith in humanity. Whereas then there's the this week's story about Ike Perlmutter, the chairman of Marvel Entertainment. Did you see this about him being investigated by the House? I don't even know if I want to know about what they could have done, but shoot. Let's go. It's news, right? We got to. It, it's news. Okay, All right. So grab the shovel me, and dig, sir. Okay. Just want to start off by saying. Ike Perlmutter is 78 years old. He's already a billionaire. He's got more money than he could possibly spend with the time he has left on this planet. Hold on. Is there any chance that we could receive any of this money? <laughs> is there any chance at all? I mean, I, if... I, I, I think this is highly unlikely. But okay, sure. then, go, then go ahead with the story. Consequences be damned. Let the truth come out. But if there's, um, seriously, if there's any chance of us getting money, can you make it a positive spin at the end? I. But I just, I don't see this happening. All right, go ahead. Truth come up. Earlier this week, news broke that Perlmutter, along with attorney Mark Sherman and Dr. Bruce Moskowitz, were involved in a scheme to influence the Veterans Administration. The idea here was this trio would gain access to some of the personal information that would be found in veterans' personnel files and then profit from this info. These three tried to pull off this scheme while Donald Trump was still president. Uh, And it turns out they were able to get this in motion because Ike, Mac, and Bruce were all members at Mar-a-Lago, Trump's private golf club in Florida. And these three would then use the access they had to the president as members of his private golf club to then influence policies at the VA to their own benefit. And I, I have to say... That I'm a veteran myself, and having been, I mean, I'm going to the VA next week for an eye appointment, and I see all of the rather elderly people who typically go to the VA and who serve their country, and the fact that somebody was trying to profit off of these people who serve their country, I find it kind of appalling. Well, certainly. Like when you said that they were trying to, you know, get stuff to work for their way, I'm like, are they trying to get their medicine for like a discount or what? Is there a scam involved? The Ponzi scheme? Here we go. Let me share what's come out so far about the investigation. 
Carolyn Maloney, she's the chairman of the House Oversight Committee, has stated that these three violated the law and sought to exert improper influence over government officials to further their own personal interests. Now, mind you, to be fair, a representative from uh, Ike Perlmutter's office insists that this is all an innocent misunderstanding. I think this is our way into possibly getting some money. Oh, okay, cool. Okay. In a statement released earlier this week, Perlmutter's office claimed that the VA's struggles were no secret, which is why when the president and senior managed or senior leadership of the VA asked for our help, we gladly volunteered our time to do so. So, again, the Oversight Committee is looking into what Ike, Bruce, and their pal did here. So it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. I will tell you that the folks at Disney are not real happy with Ike Perlmutter this week. Now, mind you, Disney's already having a tough Marvel-related week. Did you see what the mouse is, is being sued by family members of, of Marvel creators like Stanley, Steve Ditko, and, and Gene Colan? Now, that I did see. And okay. that, that seemed like it could have some consequences that were, uh, well, universe-shattering, shall we say. Cinematic u- universe-shattering. <laughs> Damn it, I'll say it. Marvel is cinematic universe-shattering. What's up with go. that? But, but notice, you, at no time do you say spump. No, 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 well, I I, I don't wear shoes very often, and I don't leave the house very often, so I I have a very rare opportunity to actually get spunk on the bottom of my shoes. There we go. Okay, so so to explain what's going on here, folks, these family members are filing notices of termination on Marvel characters like Spider-Man and Black Widow. Spider-Man, that character, which was created by Steve Gitko, though what's interesting is if you go over to Wikipedia and they describe that Spider-Man as a character was created, was writer-creator Stan Lee, artist-creator Steve Ditko. And they worked together for Spider-Man's first appearance in Marvel Comics, August of 1962. Uh, Spidey's first appearance was in Amazing Fantasy issue number 15. Now, the argument that the administrator of Steve Ditko's estate is now making that under copyright law... Created in August of 1962, at some point the rights should return to the creator. So an author or his or her heirs can file a notice of termination that asking that the rights of the character then be returned to the original author after a set period of time. Now, Disney, on the other hand, is arguing that due to the Marvel method, how Stan would sort of talk out loud and we want to do this with a character, we want to do that with a character, and what if he did this, what if he did that... And then he would send the artist off with some, some rough notes and that sort of thing. And, mm-hmm. you know, Steve Yitko would come up with, you know, the Peter Parker. And that was the Marvel method, that Stan would come up with a rough idea for a new comic book character and then hand that idea off to one of Marvel's staff writers or artists to, to turn it into a finished work. Matter of fact, it was last week where I misquoted uh, Neil Gaiman as the person who did that, where you just write something and hand it off to an artist and went, good luck, Chuckles, I'm off to have cocktails with the boys. That was, that was uh, Stan's story there. And yes, <laughs> there were a few beverages involved. But, oh, sure. Okay, so realistically, from Disney's point of view, this wasn't, isn't really an artist-creator situation, but rather a work-for-hire situation. The Disney's attorneys are going to fight this Marvel notice of termination thing tooth and nail. Should Steve Ditko's heirs prevail, the rights to Spider-Man could revert to the Ditko family as early as June of uh, 2023. Which means you get ready for Spider-Man 4 through 9 in the next seven months because they're going to be shooting them suckers back to back to back to back to back to back to back. You know what I'm saying? Uh, Spider-Man goes to the bathroom. (laughs) Toilet flush. and All right, roll credits. Next episode, Spider-Man has lunch. Uh, Yeah, so, I mean... There's so many different things about this that I want to tear apart and look at specifically, and I think it would be better if we did it over time. I totally agree. And what also colors this issue is that you got to remember when it comes to issues related to copyright, Disney is the company behind the Sonny Bono Law, a.k.a. the Copyright Term Extension Act of 1998, a.k.a. the Mickey Mouse Protection Act. Under this act, works made in 1923 or afterwards 
are still protected by copyright in 1998 and would not enter the public domain till January of 2019 or later. So, you know, and Mickey, who having first appeared in 1928, with Spidey supposedly potentially being returned to the Ditko family in June of, of 1923, Mickey supposedly will enter the public domain as early as 2024. Given that retaining control of both Marvel and Mickey are crucial to the Walt Disney Company's future, we should expect the Disney's attorneys to spend a lot of time in court over the next two years. Is oh, no, I'm sure that uh, Disney's got other movies since Steamboat Willie that they can turn into CGI, almost live-action ripoffs of something they've previously done before. That should keep them going out for about another 40 or 50 years before they need an original thought or idea. Um... <laughs> Did I say that out loud? I think I did. I, I, I think you said the quiet part out loud. I, I may have. I may have. Uh, I was so looking forward to the Disney Studio Christmas party. But <laughs> Not anymore, my friend. Uh, we're going to be eating them drumsticks solo. Anyway, the, the some of the questions are, like a writer writes a thing for, uh, you know, like a, a publication, and that publication gets to use it for the rest of their eternal life, uh, even if the writer goes away. And uh, goes to work somewhere else, right? And I know I've still got commercials playing at a radio station I haven't worked at 20 years ago. You know, they're still playing today. I'm not getting anything out of that. The station is 100% because I was work for hire. And very, very recently, Mr. Foot and Mouth Disease, Bob Chapek, was talking about how times are changing and the old ways of actor contracts is going to be different at Disney. Didn't he say something like that very recently? Right. So my uh, hunch is with things like, I mean, this just came out of the blue. So this wasn't on their mind at the moment. But if if this is now a a new dragon that they've got to slay on the battlefield, you know, while they're battling Scarlett Johansson and trying to keep their company uh, uh, growing and and bigger and better. And it's like, oh, you're going to take away our characters. And do you think? Hollywood or a portion of Hollywood, you know, like Disney is not Hollywood. But do you think Disney can go your work for hire now? You don't get paid forever and ever and ever just because you're a part of this. This new contract says, I'm going to pay you very, very handsomely up front. I am so confident that we're going to make bank. I'm going to give you 50 million. And most people would go, I'll take that deal because it's more than what I would have gotten if I would have done back ends for the rest of my life. Do you think they're 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 going to try and change the formula of how movies are made? And if they do, is that going to start a whole bunch of dominoes tipping, 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 tipping until the whole thing collapses into a different industry? Did we talk on the last show about the Lady and the Tramp thing with uh, Peggy Lee? I don't think so. Okay. There was a court case in the late 80s, early 90s where Peggy Lee sued the Walt Disney Company because she, she looked at her contract for Lady and the Tramp and she saw that, okay, you know, I made, you know, wrote the songs for the song movie in 1955, and but there's no, nothing in this contract that says what I get paid if it gets sold on VHS. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, she took them uh, Disney to court and it was one of these cases where going into it, Disney knew that, this is going to be a disaster for us because Peggy at that point was not the lovely young lady that she'd been, you know, in the 50s. She was elderly, infirm, in a wheelchair. She was the ultimate sympathetic witness. And Disney had to pay her a, a very large chunk of change because there was nothing in the contract that said anything about VHS. So what was interesting is on the heels of that, now if you, uh, you know, sign on to do a voice for a Disney film, There is language in your contract to the effect of VHS, CD, Blu-ray, and technologies yet to be invented. So, yes, they have done this sort of thing previously. The Jack Kirby estate did something very similar about three or four years ago. And just as it was ramping up, and in fact, they were getting ready to take it to the Supreme Court and what was stu- of the United States. And what was very interesting is that Ruth Bader Ginsburg was very interested in this case, wanted to, to definitely weigh in on it. And then suddenly they settled. 
I have a feeling that they're just going to start writing some very immaculate contracts that just say that you're an employee. And if you build something, if you draw something, if you write a piece of music, it's mine, not yours. You can't touch it ever again. You can't say, you know, that was mine because you were an employee of Disney and that's ours. Like if we claim ownership over you of some sort because we're employing you, that's our money. That's Disney money that is creating that music. Not you. And you need to, when you come on board, you're going to sign a contract that's going to say, in 100 years, your grandkids will only be able to point and say, my granddad wrote that, but I don't have a cent to show for it because I don't, I don't get anything out of that. You're not, you know, we paid you for the job. You did the job. Now get off my lawn, right? If they go that route, if they start thinking that way, if they try and start enacting contracts like that, uh, it's not just the MCU people that come on board from here on out. It's not just all of the Disney voice actors for the cartoons from here on out. It's not, it's Fox movies. It's a good chunk of the entertainment industry that changes under the umbrella of one company. And as soon as they do that, someone like their neighbor, like Sony, who makes movies with them goes, oh yeah, we're going to do that too. Oh yeah, wait, we can't control it. It's the way uh, Disney is, and if we're gonna work with them, well, we gotta we gotta screw you too. Interesting point. Okay, folks. Well, Aaron and I will keep an eye on on the story. You know how it impacts copyright at Marvel. Likewise, this uh, notice of termination. And speaking of termination, we're gonna stop here for just a quick ad break. But when Aaron and I get back, we're gonna talk about this week's episode of Marvel's What If. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On last week's show, we talked about Victoria Alonso, uh, you know, her, her recent promotion at Marvel Studios. And she's become sort of the ubermeister of, of effects work and animation. And so she was recently interviewed about the number of projects that Marvel currently had in development for Disney Plus or for theatrical release. And, and she said, how many grains of sand are on the beach? How many stars are in the sky? <laughs> Was it that dramatic? Oh, um, <laughs> actually, it's actually, it, it, she kind of put the needle in the other direction, but in oh. a very sweet way. That the, okay. the, the interviewer said, I heard you guys have uh, 35 movies and limited series of the work at Marvel Studios. And, and Victoria came back and said, it's actually just 31. Please don't give me four more Marvel movies and TV shows to work on. It's tough enough just doing 31. Yeah, so, so she's on a very private beach, apparently. Okay. The, good, no, good that's it exactly. I just, <laughs> I, I just want this one tiny pile of sand. Well, anyway, I, I bring this story up because it's part of the lead up to this week's episode of, of Marvel What If. AC Bradley, she's the head writer of this animated series, but she admitted that season one of this Disney Plus show had originally supposed to have 10 episodes, but due to the pandemic, one episode that was planned for season one of Marvel's What If wound up getting pushed off to season two. Is this where I start throwing my temper tantrum, or should I wait till you finish? Is, is there, <laughs> Should I break well, a no, glass, throw a thing? No, 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 I think you'll actually be happy with, with her explanation here. Oh, okay. that, that Bradley explained in an interview with EW that this particular episode was supposed to have been a more light, upbeat Tony Stark episode. I noticed on Twitter we we're getting a lot of crap from killing Tony a lot. He's become the Kenny of the What If Universe by accident. Oh my God, they killed Tony Stark! You <laughs> bastards! <laughs> there we go. So season one of Marvel What If wound up just being nine episodes long. But on the other hand, kind of cool to know we are definitely getting a season two of this great animated series. So let's just start with What If Ultron won. Well, first of all, it did confirm what has previously been teased and hinted at, that a number of the stories of the characters that we've seen to date in this animated series are now going to come together for the season one uh, finale. Let's just stop and I gotta, we gotta stop right there and talk about the genius of that one bold move all by itself. 
Uh, we thought this was an anthology show. We were told this wasn't connected to anything. It was what if, what if, what if, what if a thing happened? But we weren't, we were never expecting it to be connected, really. And then we thought, well, isn't it neat how they take uh, story elements from movies that we know and love and, you know, know by heart in many cases and make these simple little twists to play with our expectations and, and toy with us like that. And then in the Thor episode, when the Watcher basically says, and as all stories go, they lived happily ever after, what the... And then Ultron appears, and then it leaves on a cliffhanger, and this is the first time we go, hey, wait a minute, is this the first time that two episodes are going to connect? And now the idea that the characters from all of these episodes could come together, like there's going to be this cohesive thread, damn you, Marvel, with your elegant tapestry works. Uh, yeah, another thread that that ties them all together, that makes a unique, cohesive, brilliant story. And the way that this fight happens between Ultron and the Watcher, where he's punching him through one dimension to another, oh, to another, to another. That, that moment was amazing. I had no expectations. Jim, I, I used to read the What If comics. I, I saw that they were going to do the comic or the, or the animated series, and I, I thought, well, that'll be neat. Well, that'll be just fine. And then I saw the animation and I went, well, this is the best animation I've ever seen Marvel do. Congratulations to them. And you've been lauding the fact that they've been able to get all the actors who've been on contract for the last 10 years that that they keep coming back for to voice, you know, all these characters. And and it just keeps building on its awesomeness. And then we get this culmination of, yeah, we're going to get a whole new maybe Avengers of of Peggy, maybe, and and Steve in a in a suit made of iron that a, a different Stark made battling an Ultron from a different dimension. That now we got to cover one thing. This is a thing on Twitter I saw where a lot of fans were like, "Hey, now I I want to call shenanigans in this episode." Okay, it's the part where I'm gonna say Vision, but it's inaccurate. It's the part where Thanos comes out and Vision looks at him and just <laughs> cuts him in half. And then takes the gauntlet and takes the stones and, and moves on with the story. And a lot of people are like, if that's the case, why the hell didn't Vision do that during Endgame? And there is a reason for it. And I, uh, there was a, someone on Twitter that had a very logical, well-thought explanation. In Age of Ultron, when Vision is created, he says, I don't understand this thing in my forehead. I don't know what it is. I don't know how it works or what it does. find it rather confusing. Yes, they show him use it as a power, and he does some cool things in the movie, which is great. And then, again, in uh, Captain America Civil War, he uh, uses his little head jewel to slice a tower off at the airport to block the entrance to the hangar during the big fight scene. So we know that he has that ability and that power, but when we see him talking to Wanda, making paprikash for her, he still confirms, I still don't understand this thing that's in my forehead or quite how it what I meant to do with it. So at the end of infinity war, when Thanos comes out, that's vision. Who's still an uncertain character in what if that is Ultron in a vision body. Remember the, the title is what if Ultron won? And that means in age of Ultron, the vision suit is fulfilled and Ultron's personality is put in there. So we're not really looking at vision. We're looking at an Ultron who has all the menace and knowledge in the world. And he's more willing to just go cut a person in half, steal their stuff, move on with world actually universal domination. The fact that he went from planet to planet, even killed uh, ego. An entire planet creature. Amazing stuff. Just You just sit there with your jaw dropping further and further to the floor like, oh my God, I can't believe he's actually doing it. He's doing the thing that Thanos did, but personally, face to face, jeepers, creepers, what a nightmare. <laughs> oh, wow. If we're going to talk about individual moments, there's two that particularly I, I enjoyed. Like when Captain Marvel arrived on the scene and it's like, hey, Skynet, I've yeah. seen this movie. I mean, it was a great dialogue exchange and I really enjoyed that. But the scene at the Siberian base where we suddenly get the inversion of the battle between Black Widow and, and Hawkeye over who's going to sacrifice themselves. Yep. And got that image again, and it was one of these things where it's like, oh no! I mean, it just—I love the 
the funhouse mirror quality of the show. But it, but at the same time, something else I, I think, because you've talked about this, you talked about how much you've enjoyed the art direction of the show. How, you know, for example, I remember you talking about how when you see the watcher's face and his eye is a far off galaxy and you just mm-hmm. get the, the outline and that shape. And, and this is again from Macy Bradley's interview with EW that if you've been paying close attention to each episode of the first season of Marvel's What If, you've noticed that with each new episode, we show more and more of the Watcher's visual appearance as we move forward in the season. That initially, this character just blended in the background, but over time, as season one progressed, the Watcher went from being distant and watching these multiverses from afar to becoming well. Emotionally invested. In fact, you know, you were talking about the the tail end of the Party Thor episode where, you know, the true love triumphs or they lived happily ever after. And the Watcher has begun to live through the heroes he's watching. He knows he's not supposed to be emotionally invested, but as he suffers through the triumphs and the tragedies, the, the Watcher has become more and more part of the world. And so we've seen more of him physically as we move through each episode so by the time we got to episode eight and in order to save the multiverse from ultron he had to break his oath he had to recruit the help of the heroes that he's previously watched from a distance and that's the payoff we're about to get that that, again ac bradley from ew as we battle toward the finale we will get to see some of our favorite heroes from season one again and the watcher learns a few important lessons about what it means to be a hero and comes to a realization about how much these stories how much these worlds have meant to him you know i want to say jim that if if you uh love the funhouse mirror aspect of things imagine this if you will you are the watcher, the true watcher, who cannot interact with what's on your screen. You can only watch the events unfold. And we've watched the MCU. We've seen one entire universe uh, uh, unfold over the course of many, many years, just like the watcher did, sitting on the moon, watching the events of one reality. And now we're catching the glimpses of other realities, just like the watcher would. And we've kind of got this oath that we really can't interact. We can hope for our characters. We can wish them well, but I can't reach through the screen and pick up Mjolnir and hand it to Cap and say, go get him, boy. I just have to hope that he has the strength and the the ability to pick it up himself. That's one of the things that I love about this character is the Watcher is us. And I, I think you, you have said on previous shows what an amazing job Jeffrey Wright has done with the voice of this character, and particularly with 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 episode eight, you know that that I mean he stepped into the spotlight and really made us care about this. But mm-hmm. and one of the point I think you 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 said it really well here that if you think about episode seven was the first time we teed up gay story continuing, but with episode eight that scene with the dark version of Doctor Strange in, inside of. In fact, again, it's the blue infinity-like stone that we watched formed as as his prisoner, or as his prisoner, as he was begging the Watcher to intervene and, and help. And I, what I loved about that scene inside the gem was Doctor Strange bore him no ill will. You know, there wasn't a question of, like, we're trapped in the same space and you're the guy who got me locked in here and it's like... Yeah, but you know, the, the genius of this as a story moment, as a science yeah. fiction nerd... It's the only safe place in all of the realities because Dr. Strange destroyed his universe through his actions and got locked into a gem. And now the watcher finds himself in the only place that Ultron can't get to because it's a place that's been taken out of existence. And now they can go from there, formulate a plan and go back into the game. And I just can't freaking wait. It's genius, Jim. I mean, there's so much about this that is just subtle touches of brilliance. No, absolutely. Which brings us back again to to Bradley. Again, in fact, uh, AC was joking that the title for the combined episode eight and nine of Marvel would have should be what if the what if writers stop trying to piss off Twitter? You know, I uh, guess there's been a lot of discussion about how dark and grim this animated series has been, which you know from having read the original comics. I mean, that was kind of the whole thing 
with what if, wasn't it? I mean, just you got in a one shot these sometimes just so sad stories. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a way for a, a writer to express a, a an it, or scratch an itch that they just couldn't do inside of the normal continuity of a character. It's almost like a creative steam kettle. You know, you gotta you gotta be able to vent the steam or while you're under pressure, otherwise you're gonna explode. And if you're writing a thing and you just write and you write and you write, and then there's this one thing that goes, "Hey, wouldn't it be cool if that thing that monkey will not get off your back until you excise that demon through writing it and making it a reality and birthing it into the world?" And you go, "Now uh, you're free of that forever. I got rid of it. Now I can get back to my job, <laughs> which was writing the next nine years of Spider-Man's life." AC goes on to say that probably a better title for the combined episode 8 and 9 of season 1 of, of Marvel What If is What If the Watcher Met His Heroes? And, and again, to, to circle back to the very thing you were just saying about the darkness, Bradley went on to say, the most liberating part of What If has been writing things you'll never see in the movies, mm-hmm. which includes killing off our heroes, ending the world, just going full out. I'm excited that people now get to see with these last two episodes that we weren't going into this animated series completely clueless, that there was a bit of a bigger plan. I'm aware that many of the episodes ended tragically, and there might be a reason. I'm hoping people have enjoyed the ride so far and that the finale gives them everything we promised. So next Wednesday can't get here soon enough. I so want to see how this story wraps, you know, who comes back. But in a way, in a way I'm, I'm equally thrilled to get confirmation. Season two, we get a season two of right. What If, and hey, what are they going to do with that one? Well, I mean, since it is animated, you got to do that. It's it's a little bit more time-consuming than a live-action production may be, so I think they want to get those signed up and ready to go much more quickly uh, in case they do have a monster hit. And I mean, internally, I'm sure it's like when you're looking at dailies of a film, you're you're seeing the stuff, the the animation coming out for scenes, and you go, holy cow, guys, that's just brilliant. Yes, please, more of that. Sign me up for a second season. I don't, I don't think it took very long internally to make that decision once they started seeing just small glimpses of what they're getting out of the out of the back end of that. Probably true. Okay. Yeah. One final thing before we we end this week's show. Last week. We talked about Dennis Villeneuve. Uh, He's the director of the new Dune movie and what he had to say about the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And we then shared what the director of the original Doctor Strange, Scott Derrickson, had to say as he defended the super popular film franchise. And remember, that whole thing got teed up by what Martin Scorsese had said about the MCU when he was out promoting The Irishman. And It sounds like there's a lot of pee that got everywhere. Did the, <laughs> anyone die in this pissing match? Well, what's going on here, guys? Can't we all just agree that movies are fun? Well, see, now, Stellan Skarsgård, he's the very talented gentleman who who played Dr. Eric Selvig in uh, the original Thor, the Avengers, Thor, the Dark World, and uh, Avengers Age of Ultron. He was interviewed at the Gottberg Film Festival by their artistic director, Johannes Holmberg, back in January of 2020. And he got asked about this Scorsese MCU uh, controversy. And what's interesting is Skarsgård had a very thoughtful response. What Martin Scorsese wrote in his article with the New York Times, was not that it was Marvel's fault, because it's not. He knows that. The fault is we have, for decades, believed that the market should rule everything and that the rich should get richer. And that is the root of it all, because what has happened is all the little distribution companies have been erased. It's monopoly now. Some film companies are not run by people who want to make money off of film because they love film. They're run by big corporations who want 10% back on their invested capital, which means as long as they sell popcorn, it's fine. That's why all of the mid-range films, the films that cost less than $100 million to make, but sometimes have a budget that's more than $3 million, they don't exist anymore. Mid-range films are the ones that can slowly grow in a cinema. They open in a few cinemas, and, and then they go on for years. And One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which was originally released in 1975, that ran continuously in Stockholm for 20 years. That doesn't happen anymore. So what's happening to cinema today 
is not the fault of Marvel. It's the fault of the idea of how the economic systems of the world should work, because these systems are, are all fiction. But the fiction we've had over the past couple of decades have led to this. And, it, and I, what I loved about what Stellan said here is, look, it's not the movie's fault. Nowadays, in the term show business, the most important world is business. You know, I, what, what I would love to see happen right now, and by the way, I am a fan of Denis Villeneuve's movies, truly. I think yep. he's a wonderful, wonderful director. Uh, we say things on the show critically sometimes because we're just giving our opinions, and that happens mm-hmm. sometimes. And you know what? Sometimes our opinions may hurt the feelings of some of the people that created the thing, if those people listen to us, but I'm sure they got better stuff to do than listen to two idiots like us. But Dennis really, really, really should assemble his cast of Dune and say those words out loud and watch the faces of some of his actors because Zendaya, she's in Dune and she's also been in the Spider-Man movies. Oscar Isaac is the new uh, Moon Knight. It was also... Uh, in Age of Apocalypse, in the X-Men movies, Stellan Skarsgård, you obviously mentioned, is uh, Selvig. Oh, that's right. Oh, my God. I forgot uh, he's actually into... Oh, this yeah. Then like we've... I planned. Like I planned it. Yep. So. Uh, you got Josh Brolin, who was uh, not only Thanos, but he was in the Deadpool movie as... Uh, was it Cable? There. So you got him. Let's see. We got Dave Batista is also in Dune, who uh, is obviously Drax the Destroyer. So really, uh, Dennis, assemble your cast on the work that they've done in front of them and then see what happens, my friend. I like your movies, but think about some of your opinions before you blurt them out. Please and thank you. Good day. Well, again, this is why I so enjoy doing the show with you. That Wow. That's some great thing in there. Well, not on his part. (laughs) (laughs) Certainly not. Certainly not. Okay, folks. So that is going to do it for this week's uh, Marvelous Disney. Uh, If you could do Aaron and I a favor, if you could head on over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review, that does help quite a bit with the notice of the show. And by the way, if you really, really, really like what you heard here, if you want to head over to Bandcamp and subscribe, that would be helpful as well. We have a couple other podcasts here. We've got Disney Dish with Len Testa. We've got Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor. Likewise, uh, New Universal Joint. Did you see, by the way, they, they announced that they are expanding the Super Nintendo world for Japan, uh, that they're going to do a Donkey Kong area as well? Well, you know, it's it would be great if they were to increase it by about 64 acres so they could call it Super Nintendo 64. <laughs> bomb. All right. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Try the veal. Have a great night. Don't forget to tip your bartenders and waitresses. We out of here. Well, he may be out of here, but if you, 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 if you enjoy listening to Darren's contribution to the show here, you should follow him on social media. And how might we do that? Over on Twitter, at Azaprod, A-Z-A-P-R-O-D. Please and thank you. I'll chat with you online. Cool, cool. And uh, social media-wise, uh, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram as Jim Hill Media and over on Facebook as Jim Hill Media News. And like I said, this time next week, uh, Aaron and I will have seen the finale of season one of What If, and hopefully we'll also have gotten to see Venom Let There Be Carnage, so should be a fun show. So please come back, and until then, take care.